Welcome to the PS Younger Self Podcast, where we talk to inspirational entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and creatives from around the world and how we can all crush our fears to live our most fulfilling lives and always on our own terms. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me for another episode of PS Younger Self. I'm so excited about our show today as we're exploring the fascinating topic of epigenetics and how we can hack our genes to not only optimize our health, but how it can be the key to unlocking a high-performance lifestyle. And to help me dive deep into this discussion, I'm so lucky to have an amazing epigenetics coach who works with high achievers in tech and entertainment and from cancer researchers to entrepreneurs and creatives. He was also the very first epigenetics coach certified by the world-renowned visionary and pioneer in human potential and epigenetic science, Dr. Dan Stickler. My guest today was also nominated as one of the top 100 healthcare innovators by the International Forum for Advancements in Healthcare in 2019. And he has also developed a proprietary genetic test for the endocannabinoid system. But his personal story on how he puts it, his work chose him, and how he fell into this field is also really fascinating. So please meet our very special guest today, David Krantz. Thanks so much for joining me, David. I am so looking forward to our conversation and learning so much from you. I know your expertise will be especially valuable today during our current global climate where health and strengthening our immune system is on everyone's mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on, Chris. I, I really appreciate it, and it's always a pleasure to connect with uh, you know like-minded people that really look at epigenetics as a underpinning to health and well-being, and like you said, a high-performance lifestyle. So, yeah, looking forward to diving it into diving into it here. Awesome. Yeah. No, completely. And to be very honest with you, the word epigenetics wasn't even in my vernacular until recently, when I kept hearing one of my favorite podcasters referencing it in the context of optimizing health and human performance. So I am ready to learn so much from you. But to give a little context, it'd be really great because as I mentioned from reading up on you, you had a very untraditional and interesting way of how you kind of fell into this field and became um, this epigenetics coach. And there is a little bit of magic synchronicity in place. So would you like to tell us how you kind of fell into this fascinating world. Yeah. Like you said earlier, I, I do kind of feel like this work chose me in a way. I went through some really difficult health challenges in my early 20s. I was a touring musician and really my late night lifestyle kind of just got the best of me and I, I was not taking care of my health and um, just had a bunch of weird health issues come up. I started passing out randomly and had stomach issues and just kind of had this whole palette of seemingly unrelated things. But, you know, later on, I would really discover everything is actually connected. But, you know, I went, I went to a bunch of different kind of allopathic doctors and, and they told me, oh, you're, you're a healthy young guy. Like there's nothing we can do for you basically. Like just deal with it. And I was like, all right, well, there's clearly something not quite right. And I, I you know, just became obsessed with biohacking and health and really trying to figure out what was going on with my body and thought maybe I could do something with nutrition. Maybe I could look at all these things that other people were talking about and see if it could make a difference for me. And then, yeah, like 
like you mentioned, the synchronicity happened where I was working at a job here in Asheville, North Carolina. And on my lunch break one day, I realized that the logo on the building next door was the same logo that was on one of my favorite podcasts that I'd been listening to with uh, Dr. Dan Stickler, who, as you mentioned, is a world-renowned epigenetics and um, nutrigenomics expert. And I initially just wanted to make an appointment to see him to get some blood work done and work with him because I was so appreciative of his perspective. And they were actually looking for someone at when I talked to him, it turned out they were looking for someone to uh, develop audio programs for them, develop meditation and brainwave entrainment programs. And that was something that was totally in my wheelhouse, stuff I'd been experimenting with for years. And I quit my other job, joined them as fast as I could. And right around that time, Dr. Stickler started thinking about developing a epigenetic coaching training program. And I was in the right place at the right time. He asked me if I'd be a beta tester for his program because he kind of recognized that I'd done a lot of the groundwork to figure out similar systems. I didn't have the epigenetic language yet for it, but I had a lot of the core foundational understandings of health and the human body because I had to kind of fix myself. So ended up training with him and the rest is really history. Um, I'm just really fortunate to have been in the right place at the right time. Yeah, no, I mean, that's so wild. And I like to think, I know we mentioned synchronicity, but I really don't think like coincidence has happened in our life. Like you clearly were meant to be there because of also this experience that you had. And you were one of the first, I believe, you know, to be trained by his training program and look at what you're doing now and providing this, this gift to so many other people. That's so wild. And thank you so much for sharing that background. Um, so let's get to the basics. I know epigenetics is not as simply as understanding nature versus nurture. And what I find really fascinating and, you know, I'm just getting into understanding what this all means is that we actually have a bit of control over how our lifestyle and everything around us has an impact and not just our health, but potentially the way we see and, and shape our future. So can you tell us really simply, what is epigenetics? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned nature and nurture, and I think most of your audience will probably be familiar with this dichotomy, right? This this idea that the way that you are, you know, your health, your personality, the way you show up in the world is is either a product of nature or nurture. And, you know, for, for many, many years, the argument was, is it nature or is it nurture? Is it the result of what you're born with or is it the result of how you're raised? And in the past 30 years or so, epigenetics has really answered this, that it's both flat out. It is a relationship between the gene and environment interaction that trumps most things. Some, you know, some aspects are going to be more hardwired and related to your underlying biology and some things are more flexible and dependent on you know how what your environmental experience 
in the world is like. But epigenetics gives us language to describe how your experiences are actually embedded in your biology. And it also gives us language to understand how your underlying genes go into creating differential responses to the environment from person to person. And so what this really looks like is, you remember, I don't know if you got taught this, but when I was in high school biology class, I was taught the central dogma of biology, which is your genes code for proteins, which code for traits. And so this is a very nature-based philosophy, right? This is what science understood to be true since the structure of DNA was discovered for, for a while until we understood epigenetics. And what epigenetics really shows us is, yes, that is true. Your genes do code for proteins that code for traits, but those traits are actually flexible and dynamic and change depending on what environment you're in, what information your body is getting. Your genes can actually change the structure of those proteins in order to match the environment. And what this really says is, okay, you know, you have this certain deck of cards you're dealt right? But you do have the ability to influence that with nutrition, with supplements, with your stress management, with your education, with the like all of these different in- inputs to the system. Epigenetics has leveled the playing field, right? So you get this, this notion that, um, you know, in, in traditional allopathic medicine that, okay, you know, drugs are the way that we influence the human system. Like that's the primary, most powerful way to do it. And yes, that is one input, but epigenetics really gives us this way to describe that a lot of the genes that are influenced by drugs are also influenced by things like exercise and nutrition and light and all of these other factors that when you stack them up can be just as powerful as a pharmaceutical intervention. Um, just, with a little bit of a gentler, lower risk approach. So, you know, the, the thing with epigenetics, I think is that it has become kind of a buzzword, right? Um, and there is like so many things that become buzzwords and can get watered down. There's a lot of truth mixed in with half truths. And I think that for your audience to really understand, uh, the complexity of epigenetics, it's important to really say that, um, you know, we don't know a lot about it yet. We really don't have a good grasp on all of the all of the genes, all of the of the ways they express, all of the ways they respond to things. But we do know enough right now to say that this is really the future of the way that systems in the body are interrelated. And I, I can't really stress that enough in terms of why epigenetics is so exciting is this interrelatedness, right? It it matches different systems in the body that we used to think were, we knew they were connected, but we didn't quite know how, right? Like how the musculoskeletal system connects to the immune system and how it connects to uh, the circulatory system and how it connects to metabolism. Well, epigenetics can mediate all of these things and be responsive to all of the things we put in our bodies, all of the things we experience in life. And, and let me give you a specific example. You know, it, it's it, it's really well known that uh, early childhood trauma, for example, early adverse experiences influence all kinds of disease risk, right? Like higher rates of heart disease, higher rates of mental health problems, um, and 
from a psychological perspective, you know, you can look at how these things show up in terms of stress coping patterns, maladaptive coping patterns. Um, but you can also look at it from the perspective of epigenetics and actually look at how certain genes are turned on or off by stressful situations and how those genes over time go into creating these disease risks or how you eating the right diet for your body can actually lower those risks, right? And epigenetics just provides this kind of central hub that all these other spokes are kind of plugged into that gives us a way to describe how the human body responds to the environment and gives us ways to leverage it. So that's really my approach as a health coach, right? Is to say like, let's look at this base layer and see how we can influence it. Does that yeah. kind of give you a good description there? Yeah, yeah, no, it really lots of information there and absolutely. And for me, it just sounds like, you know, um, I forget the word that you use, but it's just a next level of personalized health now with all this new information that we're getting where, you know, especially in uh, um, the US, you know, health here is uh, there's mass prescription on things, whether it's prescription drugs or your diet regimen and nutrition. Um, There's so many different diets out there. And I feel from like, uh, you know, some of the more popular ones right now, like ketone or um, anyway, and all, and I feel like it's mass prescription that like, oh, if you want to lose weight, do the ketogenic diet or this diet. And I feel like with this information, understanding how everyone's gene, first of all, is very unique, right? Not one single person on this planet is like anyone else. And then on top of that layer, you add that person's environment, that person's family, stress stress factors, and what you put in your mouth and eat all make up how one's you know, future can really be different. And the personalized health needs to be really, really customized to all those factors that go into it. Did I um, understand that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. And what you're getting at here is um, really looking at genetic variants that influence this epigenetic response. And I I think it might be helpful for your listeners to kind of really tease those two things apart because they're interrelated, but not exactly the same. Okay. So- you know, like you said, no two people have the exact same genetic code. It's what makes us unique. It's our biological fingerprint. But we can, in fact, look at commonalities and look at similarities because when we map the human genome in the early 2000s, what we did is give ourselves a roadmap to be able to say, okay, each person's genetic structure, even though the code is different, it's laid out on this grid in the same way, right? We can say in this particular location of the genome, we know that uh, there's a particular amino acid that might be switched from person to person. And that difference in code might create a different kind of protein, might create a different neurotransmitter receptor shape, might create a different enzyme function. And by isolating these functional variants uh, and comparing people's traits, right? Say comparing how someone metabolizes saturated fat 
or what someone's risk of heart disease is when they eat a diet that looks like this versus looks like this compared to that genetic variant. You can look at these commonalities and even though all the combinations of all these things are different from person to person, you can say, oh, well, we kind of know what this one does. Maybe when it's stacked with this combination of other things, we can kind of start to predict what that does. And a lot of uh, the the outcome measures, right? A lot of what we're, we're talking about in terms of, are you able to have the mental energy and the focus and the clarity that you want, um, are going to be interrelated to, um, you know, how much inflammation is going on in your body, how, uh, what your levels of neurotransmitters you have in your body, what levels of nutrients are required to power that, right? Um, by looking at how all of those different genetic variants kind of stack up in a person. Yeah. You can create a really customized, unique approach by combining all of that person's individual variants into this kind of sum total picture, right? And it's a, it's a very different approach than like you said, just saying, Oh, look, like here's a new diet to try. Here's a uh, new supplement to try that I heard worked from this other person. Uh, It's an approach that says, well, you know, there may be aspects of that diet or there may be reasons why that supplement might work for some people. Let's really get granular and look and see, you know, how you're wired and what your experiences are and whether this is called for and whether it makes sense. And then kind of track that over time and look at the, the response to those things epigenetically. And, um, you know, I think we're, we're entering a a space right now where, um, in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to have some really incredible targeted testing and we already do, but I'm always constantly looking for that next ability to really track and, and measure and, and, and check that out. Wow. That's so, um, incredible. So when you actually, you know, at, as much as you can tell us, tease us a little bit. You said, you know, 10 years from now, there'll be even more advanced ways of doing uh, targeted testing. So what what do you kind of foresee um, versus like what's happening already now, which is already so much more advanced than where we were like 10 years ago? Can you give us a little teaser? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll t- in terms of where we're at now, the genetic testing in terms of looking at underlying variants in the nuclear genome, right? This is your genetic code that doesn't really change throughout your lifetime. I've gotten pretty good at that. Starting to get pretty good at uh, being able to pick out different genetic variants, kind of understand how they might influence response to nutrition, stress, all that. Where there's not a lot of ability right now is to really track the epigenetic changes from those interventions, from the nutrition, from exercise and things like that over time, largely because most of the ability to do that is still kind of in the research world. It's in university labs. There's not a cost-effective way to do it very well. And we also just haven't cataloged the, 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 what we need to, to make those things useful. I'll tell you, there's, there's one exception to that right now that's on the market. Um, that's, uh, the, it's an epigenetic age test. Um, Horvath, it's the Horvath, um, age test. And it, it looks at a series of a couple hundred epigenetic marks that they've correlated with biological age. And so you can go out and get this. You can, you can look and see how, uh, epigenetic correlations with age change when you do, um, you know, nutrition interventions or, you know, whatever it is you're doing to track. But, 
when you think about the all of the different epigenetic changes that happen in response to these things, it's just this tiny, tiny percentage that we've discovered and kind of have a feel for for we know what what it, it does, right? So it's about creating these reference points, like I was mentioning with the uh, human genome project. Okay, we've got the the reference points for the base genome. Now we're starting to develop the reference points for the epigenome. And in 10 to 15 years, I think we'll have some really smart ways to identify changes and look at the dynamic aspects of this system in a deeper way. And I mean, when you, when you look at, you know, the, um, from a research standpoint, right? Like when you go and, and just do a, uh, an analysis on someone's whole genome and say, let's look at all these epigenetic changes from this, well, we know there's a ton happening. And once we isolate and say, all right, here's the one that or the few that are really important, right? Here's the ones that we know if we, we were moving in this direction, that's good. Or if we're moving in this direction, we, you know, that's bad. Once we have more of that data and can create these spectrums and scales to look at and analyze, um, it's only it's going to get incredibly powerful. So um, I'm pretty excited to that. And, and one of the areas I think it's really going to revolutionize is mental health. Because um, it's pretty well established now that different um, mental illnesses, depression, anxiety, panic disorder, PTSD have epigenetic signatures, right? Um, And it's a question of, you know, can we create targeted interventions that reverse or change those marks in a way that we can measure and track and maybe the way that those, you know, the, the right intervention for the right person is going to be different depending on all, you know, how their genome is initially wired. And I mentioned this, um, you know, uh, it's been kind of a rabbit hole. I've been down on the mental health side of things. So, <laughs> um, no, but it's, it's so important, especially now. I mean, the men- mental illness is on the rise for so many different reasons. And so, no, thank you for doing all the work in that area. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, one of the things that, was super fascinating to me that I didn't know. Um, and, and there's not a lot of data there. There's six studies right now that show this, um, that in successful therapy outcomes, people doing psychotherapy, talk therapy, um, in successful people that are treated, I think they've looked at it in, uh, panic disorder, PTSD, and certain personality disorders. Um, People that have successful treatment show specific epigenetic patterns that change, right? And so this is looking at something that is purely from a relational standpoint, right? It's it's developing a relationship with someone and doing things that from a you know materialistic science perspective, like probably shouldn't be changing these deep underlying epigenetic things, but they do, right? And so this is an example of you know, how epigenetics acts as this interface between something like a relationship with someone, between something like how you think, right? How, what your belief system is, um, and how your, your bio- biology expresses. So it's really this two way street, um, where we can influence things from a physical perspective and we can also influence it from a, uh, mental, emotional, metaphysical perspective, even, you know? No, that's going to be a game changer. I mean, again, the the U.S. like where I'm from and and where you are, it just it, we're are such a 
pill addicting, pill popped um, society. And, you know, for a lot of, I'm I'm not undermining and, um, you know, really lessening how big, you know, mental illness can be and is, but to know that your lifestyle changes and just your relationships um, with whether it's therapists or these coaches can have a change in your epigenetics expression and gene expression. Um, I think that could be such a game changer and such a refreshing way of looking at, um, you know, helping with mental illness. Well, can we go into actually, because as you mentioned, uh, epigenetics is a buzzword right now, along with like biohacking. So especially amongst high performers. So can we get into you telling us, let's say your top, not the easiest, but from your perspective, the most important ways that we can biohack our epigenetics to optimize our health and performance? Yeah. You know, I think that uh, well, I'm biased because I like genetic testing. I think it's it's very helpful. I, I, I do think that one of the the quickest ways is to use genetic testing to narrow down things that are not going to work for you and the things that are probably going to be a waste of time and money, right? So I'll just get that out of the way. That's my bias because I see it work well for people and it's worked well for me. Um, but I think in a general sense, probably the biggest impactor for people that I see just consistently across the board can easily be changed. And it's pretty well talked about in the biohacking world is light. Uh, Looking at blue light exposure from screens, really changing your light diet and looking at the information that you're giving your body through light as being just as important as the information you're giving your body through food or through your information diet. You know, are you binging out on fear porn news all the time and keeping your nervous system elevated and heightened and stressed out? Or are you, you know, uh, having an information diet that really, um, you know, selectively gives you the perspective you want that's useful and empowering. Right. And so I I see light as this, um, sort of bastard child of the, of the, uh, you know, potential health inputs because it's, it's just too easy, right? It's like, it's so ubiquitous. It's everywhere. There's artificial lights everywhere. Uh, and we don't think about it because we're not really taught that it's an incredibly important mediator of our biochemistry, right? It's an important mediator of epigenetics and, you know, circadian rhythm is a huge influence on the entire expression pattern of our genes. Okay. So every single um, cell in our body has epi or has uh, circadian clock genes in them that epigenetically control the function of all the other genes in that cell. Right. So mm-hmm. can we actually, um, David, because mm-hmm. so, I really want to uh, get deeper in the circadian rhythm, um, mm-hmm. but go back to the light exposure and the light diet that you mentioned. So I'm understanding that, but if you can tell us like, why, why, I mean, it, we've been hearing about it, especially in our uh, digital world, digitized world, and we're all consumed with, um, you know, being on multiple screens and holding our phones from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to bed. But what is it exactly, this this light exposure? What does the light do in being 
that can be so damaging to you know our health and and affecting the epigenetics yeah absolutely so um and the the circadian genes is one of the big reasons there uh for that because you know th- let's just zoom zoom out and and look at human history let's look at human evolution on the earth over the span of time we evolved under the sun as a primary source of light and the next thing we had was fire right fire has a really pretty similar spectrum to the sun when you when you break it down and look at the wavelength balance uh red and you know red and yellow is going to be the main kind of color spectrum of a fire and same with the sun now with most of the the lighting that we use leds screens uh fluorescent lighting the actual wavelength balance is totally different than the sun and there are certain biochemical processes in the body that rely on the spectrum of light as a trigger or a signaling uh mechanism right it's like we're our bodies are are these things that are just constantly surveying the environment and saying, all right, what should we do now? What should we do now? And we evolved with this really regular 24-hour rhythm where the sunlight was the main thing that triggered um, certain chemical process through through the day. And, uh, you know, the eye is a pretty, you know, the main source of, of sensing that, but we do also have photoreceptors in our skin that... Uh, can influence circadian clock genes in peripheral tissues of the body, not just in the brain, right? So the eye is really sensitive to blue frequencies of light because they're not very present in natural sunlight. There are certain parts of the day, specifically morning time, like right before sunrise and right at sunset, when because of the angle of the sun over the horizon, there is a higher amount of blue light that would be visible higher amounts of blue light that would trigger certain processes in the body and say, Hey, here's an anchor point in the day. Here's an anchor point to the natural rhythms of the earth. And by all of a sudden flooding our existence all day, every day with high amounts of blue light, we are making our bodies non-sensitive to that naturally occurring signal that would occur at certain times of the day. And where where this gets really important is in the circadian clock genes because this blue light signal when it goes into the eye triggers a part of the brain called the RPE or the retinal epithelial pig, retinal pigment epithelium and it uh, uh I'm sorry the part of the brain is called the the supracosmic nucleus the part of the eye is the RPE um and the and that basically acts as the master clock in the body and says all right it's time to synchronize all of these functions, right? Synchronize hormones, synchronize neurotransmitters, change the function of the body from either being in wake mode to being in sleep mode, right? And when there's not a clear signal, there's not a clear conductor who's kind of making sure everything is synchronized. And what I want your audience to really, if they don't, if they get nothing else, from this, um, to recognize the rhythms of the body and how important those are to human health. And that most disease states are, if not a result, at least associated with disruptions in the rhythm 
of our biochemistry. Okay. So, you know, we always think like, oh, well, you know, we want to have, um, certain like a good good levels of neurotransmitters we want good levels of hormones but those things fluctuate throughout the day hormone levels fluctuate on a 24-hour rhythm and the synchronization is what makes it work right if you have cortisol firing at night you can't sleep if you don't have cortisol firing in the morning, it's really hard to get up and focus and be productive, right? So it's about these synchronized rhythms. And this goes to down to every process in the body. And these circadian epigenetic genes are basically the conductors for each cell. They sync up to this master clock in the brain that is all related to light. And so when you throw the light signal off, you it's like, you know, everyone trying to play their instrument out of time with each other. And, you know, if you've ever been around an orchestra that isn't in, in sync with each other, it's, it's not a pleasant experience, right? So um, you, you, you see this across the board um, with almost every serious illness, there's a circadian mismatch or a circadian disruption element to it. And it's not to say that just all of a sudden changing your light environment is going to fix that. But there's a pretty good chance that it will be a helpful component in as part of a larger picture. And so it's like just looking at, you know, what's the hidden the hidden problem for a lot of people. It's a it's light, you know, and it's hard to escape from because we're constantly in a, you know, environment we've created that isn't really aligned with with human health. Exactly. I mean, we'll have to go into a deep forest or something to really be in our most natural element again to and avoid all this light. But wow, wait, so uh, there's so much there. But one of the immediate questions that came to mind was when you said that, so does it really boil down to most diseases that is because of disruption in our natural rhythm? Did I get that correct? There's a there's a component of it, right? Got it. Okay. Um, okay. And it's not necessarily that that's the cause, but yeah. when dis- when dysfunction, cellular dysfunction happens, and you can describe pick pick a disease, you know, you, you describe describe it as cellular dysfunction at some level. When um, that dysfunction might be caused by disruption and say in 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 circadian signaling, or the circadian signaling might be disrupted as a result of other dysfunction. And so it's, again, it's kind of this two-way street where one is probably going to reinforce the other. Um, but if you can focus on um, you know, correcting things from both sides or multiple sides, you probably got a better chance there. So um, you know, I, I would not necessarily say it's a cause, but it's definitely a um, association and something that might exacerbate existing problems. Got it. Got it. Okay. So um, I want to actually ask a personal question. Wait, so circadian rhythm, do we have, I'm assuming, but maybe I'm wrong, that we all have different circadian rhythm? We have, we have variations in it. There, there is definitely a, a, um, there are true night owls out there. There are yeah, you know, people that have different schedules and, um, you know, we, it's not a one size fits all thing. Yeah. Um, I will say that in my years of coaching, I, I do tend to see more people that do better 
with a kind of standard go to sleep at, you know, reasonable bedtime and wake up kind of with the sun schedule. Most people end up doing better with that. And even people that I see that think they're night owls and commit to that, sometimes they really do do better. But then, you know, there are people that are true night owls and really should stick to that. And then it becomes about consistency, right? So that's what I was, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's what I wanted to ask you next because so, I mean, after reading about so many high performers and billionaires and extremely successful people, there's this understanding that they wake up extremely early, like 4 or 5 a.m. And there is also another brain science behind that. You probably know it. Um, And they go to bed really early. I am, as you mentioned, a night owl. And I actually downloaded, I think, one of your, your tips for like night owls and creatives and how to, um, you know, optimize if you have that type of a lifestyle. And so I am going to bed on average, like at 1 a.m. to 1.30. And I'll wake up at like 7.30 to like eight o'clock the latest. But it's pretty consistent, David. Like that's when I, weekday and and because I work from from home I can I don't have to wake up super early to go to commute which was the case when I lived in New York for 11 years but um so am I better off to adjust my sleep schedule to which I've been trying to work on but it's 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 actually one of the areas of my lifestyle that I'm having the most difficulty in optimizing so it's not my health it's not my you know mental um you know performance level etc but it's the sleep and so am I better off adjusting to that more natural circadian rhythm of wake up earlier go to sleep earlier or if I maintain this consistent schedule throughout, I'll be okay. Well, I'll say it's it's worth experimenting with. And this is what I'll do with my clients is I say, you know, let's try a couple weeks of it like this. Let's track some things and let's try a couple weeks of it like that. Uh, and then we'd probably look at your genes and, and see what is there around, um, you know, some, uh, around the, the night owl genes. Um, but you know, a lot of it is about optimizing sleep quality while you're getting it. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, staying consistent because um, your body will adapt. And as long as you have a consistent anchor, you know, it gives your, some, your body something to latch onto. It's, it's like, okay, maybe the conductor is gonna, um, you know, uh, tell you to play it at this tempo or, you know, or maybe we'll tell you to play it at a faster tempo. It's like, as long as everyone is on the same tempo, we can, we can work with it. We can, we can have some synchronization. Um, and so it's really, yeah, if you're, if you're consistent, that is, you know, I'd say the biggest thing. Um, and then I'd say experimenting with, um, just sleep length sounds like for you might be, uh, helpful. You know, I, I tend to find that seven hours minimum really creates that, um, uh, that kind of optimal performance zone, uh, and really, really? just, mm-hmm, yeah. And most so people- there is a difference of getting the number of hours of sleep. Cause we've all heard growing up, you know, eight hours of sleep, eight hours of sleep. I can't remember the last time I got eight hours of sleep. It's usually around six and a half to seven, but that you're saying it definitely makes a difference. The number of hours you actually do sleep. It does. Too. And it, it, it's also something that can be different for people. Um, you know, the, it's like seven to nine hours tends to be that optimal range for people. 
Uh, once you start getting less than seven, you tend to start seeing cognitive performance deficits. Um, but some people do great with like exactly seven. And so that might be something to experiment with for you to say like, all right, you know, maybe, maybe I'm going to try a week of just making sure I get seven every night. Now, there are some rare people out there that can truly do uh, five or six hours of sleep. There, there's a gene called DEC2 um, that there's a certain variant where some people can can be fine with five or six hours. Um, but the amount of people that carry that variant, it's less than 1% of the population. Um, wow. But I guarantee there's a lot more than 1% of people who think they have. Exactly. I mean, and, uh, I, mean I hear this all the time among um you know, other high achievers who may not have this sleep cycle where they're sleeping early or waking up super early, but they are getting like four or five hours of sleep and they're like, oh, I'm totally fine. But does that, and they may be fine in actually being productive, but does it later catch up to them in terms of overall health? That's the key. That's the key is, is yes, it, it does. And, um, you know, are you are you going to sacrifice short term productivity for long term health? You know, that's a choice. But I think if it if it's an informed choice, you can strike a balance. And I mean, I'm not going to say that every single night I have a perfect sleep schedule. I'm pretty good about it. But you know, there's some nights where I want to stay up and go out and party or, or do something that's worthwhile, right? Um, and it's about uh, looking at the cost benefit. Right. It's like for me, if, if the, the social interaction it, for that night is like going to outweigh the, um, you know, the, the, the costs of being tired the next day and, and knowing that I'm going to, you know, lose some mental performance, like I'm going to take it. Um, but it's all about the, the risk benefit analysis. And so I think for people that are consistently getting four or five hours of sleep, they really got to ask themselves, like, is this really, working as well as I think it is, are, are these extra two or three hours at, that I'm working at night really adding that much? Or would I actually be more productive during the day if I could be more hyper-focused because I had a better night of sleep before? Got it. Okay. Wow. Such great stuff. So um, I, I definitely want to go on to some other areas. So definitely um, you know, manage your sleep cycle and the quality of sleep and the duration, reduce blue light. Is there anything else that you want to share with us and helping to um, you know, hack our epigenetics and optimize our health? Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I'll say is that there's not a magic bullet. It's really about the the combination of all the little things throughout the day, and and so part of what I'd, I'd recommend people for you know to do is really think about what is your op like optimal day look like. And this is something I've been thinking about recently. Uh, actually, I haven't talked to anyone about it, so appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> um, oh, great! Yeah, but, I love uh, that I'm getting exclusive content. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So. Um, you know what I I I think is helpful is to like think about what is your absolute optimal. I am the healthiest person. These are the perfect things that I want to do every single day, and here's my perfect routine. It's probably not realistic, but it's worth mapping out, right? Like, what would be the things that you would want to do every day that would be the perfect routine, and then think about what are you willing to to 
what what's kind of the minimum viable product for that schedule, right? Like how long are you willing to go without exercising before you say, all right, I really got to hit the gym again and actually really d- look at- I love that up- you're bringing in a business business acronym into this. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Uh, it, it's like, it's like, what, what, what is the relationship between your perfect optimal routine and this natural downswing that we're all going to experience? Because I think one of the, um, the things that I, I find is missing in the biohacking world, in the health coaching world is a realistic assessment of what people's motivation and habits are actually like in the real world. Like I'm a health coach, but I am not, I do not follow the perfect routine every day. And part of, you know, living a epigenetically healthy lifestyle is striking this balance between overstressing about your healthy lifestyle and giving yourself permission to, um, you know, do the things that you want to do in a way that's natural. And so kind of coming up with these, these two, um, kind of the upper echelon of the perfect health routine, and then the lower boundary of what you're, you're not willing to go beneath is really helpful in terms of finding that middle ground and and knowing that that middle ground is going to change day to day because our lives change, right? Your, 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 your motivation changes. Maybe you're more interested in nutrition at a certain time than you are really, you know, focusing on your exercise routine. And I think that, you know, looking at this in a, in a, in a long-term sense, right? Like looking at health and health practices as something that's dynamic and something that's likely to change um, actually gives you way better chance of success rather than coming at it from the perspective of like, nope, this is just my health routine. And if I don't do it, well, then what now have I failed? No, you haven't failed. Like there, there's no failure in this, you know? And I, and I think just coming at it from a more flexible standpoint for people uh, is something that, that is um, very helpful in actually helping people to do the things they want. And also take away some of that um, unhealthy shame around not doing it when it doesn't happen, right? And from an epigenetic standpoint, balancing um, stress and the uh, kind of the internal warfare we have with ourselves sometimes around this stuff, like let's try and create a mindset that allows for deviations and expects it, but also gives us the opportunity to be our best selves um, by actually understanding, you know, these tendencies in a, in a more realistic, natural way. Um, and, and so, I, I guess my my angle here is to kind of humanize biohacking in a, a, a little mm-hmm. bit because um, we can talk all day about, you know, what are the perfect routines, what are the perfect things to do. But then, how do you actually do them? You know, that's that's where I think um, you know a lot of change and a lot of opportunity is for people. Uh, I, I know I see that with my clients. I know that I see that with myself. So, um, just trying to bring some of that aspect of what is behavior change, what is habit change really like in the real world, outside of just what the content is, what is the practice. It's like, how do we do it? Yeah. No, I. I really, really find it refreshing and appreciate you being just honest and authentic with us too. That even as an epigenetics coach, that 
you don't have a very regimented, very strict, strict, and you give yourself a little permission to be flexible and be a human at the end of the day. Um, so thank you for being real. Um, and I love your approach of it not just being science, which is so fascinating, and there's obviously data and there's good, you know, um, proof in the science, but it's also a mindset too, you know, that and ev- our audience um, here at PS and why I started all of this only recently is because I know that a right mindset can be the biggest difference between creating the life that you want to live versus reacting to what is happening around you. So I I found that very refreshing and um, nice to hear that as well too. So yeah. One thing you said there that I thought was interesting that I'd love to just point out here yeah, is um, the way you framed the idea of mindset versus science. And I think this is a really common, um, you know, split that people have that say like, all right, the, the nutrition is science, the exercise is science. But when we get to the mindset piece, somehow that breaks down and it's not a scientific, but when you really look at the research, it like the mindset that you bring to the table with this is actually equally as important as what you're putting in your body. And epigenetics mediates this in terms of reinforcing certain neurochemical pathways that can influence our biology in ways that's just as tangible, just as measurable as nutrition or exercise or all these other things that we look at as hard science. And that's really the the message of epigenetics is that, okay, here's the 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 system that mindset plugs into and actually changes our biochemistry, right? And actually changes these things in uh, real measurable scientific ways. And so it's like, um, it, it gives you the uh, the platform and the language to describe why exactly what you said, you know, this to be true. You know, that mindset goes into creating a life where you're less reactive and more responsive to what you want to be creating. And, um, when you, you can study that and, 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 and really p- pick it apart and look at what are the aspects of mindset that create that. And, um, you know, I, I think that, is part of the epigenetic mindset. The epigenetic approach to this is to say, let's let's look at mindset. Let's let's use that as a tool. Let's create the inputs to the system that can influence in whatever way we can. And if we can take mindset and make nutrition more effective with that, well, why don't we do that? You know, let's combine those things. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, now there is even like. Real science. I mean, I, I'm sure it's been around for a little bit, but more so now it's becoming aware that there is actually science-backed um, understanding that meditation has really makes a profound effect in our the way we feel to our level of creativity to so much more in our performance level and everything. So um, I totally agree. I actually have been dying to ask you about um, one biohack um, and I don't mean to just kind of stress and, and throw that word out there, but it's it's becoming pop, more popular now with um, Wim Hof method. And I have been experimenting with it, but I've been dying to ask you on our conversation. 
So we we hear about this cold exposure, but can you tell us a little bit about like what is what is it about cold exposure that helps with I, I'm I'm hearing and understanding it's immunity. Um, uh, as well as, I mean, I think that's one of the key things. It really helps to build your immunity. So can you help us understand this a little bit? Yeah, sure. So um, immunity and mitochondrial function, I, I would say, are kind of the, the big ones there. And I tend to, when I work with my clients, I'm, I'm looking at it often more from a metabolic and mitochondrial standpoint. Um, one of the things cold exposure does is it triggers certain pathways uh, in the body that are responsive to uh, heat production in the body, to body heat. And it turns out there's a really good overlap between these uh, heat producing uh, parts of the body, energy production parts of the body, and also immune system signaling and function. And when we're chronically exposed to cold, it tells the signal to the body to say, hey, prepare yourself to make more body heat next time. Just in the same way that when you lift a heavy weight a bunch of times, your body goes, oh, well, maybe we're going to have to do that again in the future. We've been doing it for the last three weeks. Let's build some muscle. And so um, when we're exposed to cold, the uh, the mitochondrial um, density gets upregulated. And mitochondria are also responsible for energy production in the body, and they have a really strong signaling component that tells the immune system kind of what to do and where to go And as well. There, um, there's some papers that are now looking at mitochondria, not just as the power plants of the cell, but as the environmental sensors of the cell as well. And when um, mitochondria function gets upregulated to make more body heat, um, we end up performing um, more autophagy. We're recycling old dysfunctional cells. We're able to really, um, you know, change these internal cellular dynamics in a lot of ways for the better. Uh, a lot of what the, the immune system benefits are uh, have to do with decreased inflammatory signaling, like pro-inflammatory signaling molecules. And it does tend to increase things like T cells and, and uh, aspects of the immune system that are responsible for fighting off infections and stuff like that. So it's a pretty powerful um intervention. And, and there's also some people that argue that, you know, before we had um, heat in our houses, we were regularly exposed each winter to cold, right? Like that yeah. would have been a natural cycle that we would, you know, just be exposed to. And so we've kind of robbed ourselves of this, this cold part of the year that probably has some benefit. Um, I've certainly seen it. Yeah. Right? Like our modern life, we've gotten too comfortable. We turn on the air conditioner if we're too hot. We turn on the heater if we're too cold. I don't think it, it. we allow our bodies to naturally be exposed to stress in a healthy way that lets our body then react and build these, I don't know what the scientific word is, but, you know, to adapt and get, get stronger, just like how I feel, how I uh, exercise my, my mental growth and my personal growth is to live outside of my comfort zone. And I say to, to not live in cruise control is like when I expose myself to a little bit of risk taking is when I, I take leaps and bounds. So that's how I'm kind of, thinking about it. Am I wrong? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Hormesis. 
um, is ah, the scientific word for that, like exposing <laughs> yourself to a to a small stressor that prepares you to be more resilient in the future. Um, and there's definitely aspects of that with cold, especially psychologically too. I mean, if you can jump into cold yes. and, and do that, you are you are. I feel uh, so accomplished. Right. I will oh, tell yeah. you, David, it is my least favorite thing on this planet since I've been experimenting with cold showers. I hate it. I'm not gonna lie, I hate it. But I actually feel co- accomplished because I'm like. Damn, I got through that ice cold shower. I could, I can get through the day now. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know what's funny is, is I, I personally think that ice cold showers are way worse than ice baths because you're really, yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's like the but having I can't to take do an ice bath in my home. How am I going to do that? I don't, I don't know. But it's, it's the, it's the full um, immersion. Like once immersion? you're in, you're in. Oh. And you don't have to fight, do the shower thing where you're half naked and dancing and and trying to get <laughs> half in the water and you're in, in, in the air and it's super uncomfortable. Like once you're in a tub, you're just in the tub. You don't have to do anything after that. True. So um, I, I always I, I recommend mean, people that do cold showers to just try a cold soak and 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 go and go there because it's a different mental game, actually. Really? Okay. I I, I I'm not a bath person. That's it. I never take baths, but. Uh-huh. If 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 I, you know, to take your advice, it's better than cold showers. I may experiment. We are running out of time, and and this is. I feel like I can ask you a zillion more questions, but I'm going to be respectful of your time as well. But I have two last very important questions. One, I always like to ask my guests, and I think it's going to be very fascinating to hear from you based on all your interesting experience and how you got to what you're doing. If you could tell your younger self, David, to one piece of advice so that he remembers to live fully in the present and not freak out over so many things. Like what would be that one piece of advice you would give him? Oh man, that's such a good question. I would probably tell myself that I don't have to be right all the time. (laughs) And I think developing that muscle of not knowing earlier on would have helped me out a lot and have really given me more of an opportunity to be curious about what I don't know rather than just think I do know and make assumptions um, when I really don't have all the pieces and um, you know try and maintain that as, as best I can right now, especially during crazy pandemic times. Um, but I think my younger self would have benefited from keeping an open mind a little bit more but at the same time, recognizing that my self-perception of me having an open mind could sometimes make me think, actually lead to uh, less ability to really gauge how much I know and how much I don't know, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, 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 totally. That's a really good one, actually. Really, really good one. All right, last questions, because I know our our listeners and I myself, I, I think I definitely want to get a, a test or something, but if we wanted to reach out to you to find out more about what you do. And if they wanted to get a consultation, where can they find you? Yeah. So my website is david-krantz.com. And if you're listening to this and going, hmm, I wonder if it would be helpful for me to look at my genes and really kind of figure out how I'm wired for optimal nutrition and all these other things, uh, you can uh, book a free 30-minute consult with me and we can see if this is a good fit. So uh, yeah, I offer free 30-minute consults just to make sure that um, you know, you are a good fit for this work and, um, kind of figure out the right options. And yeah, Chris, if you wanted to do a test, can I do that? Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay. Yeah, let's do let's do a free consult and we'll 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 do a um maybe we'll do a follow-up too. That would be great. After, yeah. Oh my god, this has been so good. And thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge. So incredible what you're doing. And definitely cannot wait to talk to you again. So have an amazing day. Thank you, David. You're welcome. It was a, uh, great talking with you, Chris. And thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of PS Younger Self. It really means a lot to me that you're spending your time with me. So if you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just about anywhere you listen to your podcast. Leave me a review. Tell me what you think. It really helps me get more valuable content to you guys. So until next time, take care and remember to always live your life on your own terms.